you know what it's like to be that little coal outside the fire. Maybe there was a time in your life when you uh, pulled away from fellowship, you pulled away from a relationship with Christ, and somebody nudged you closer to the fire uh, that you would get a flame for him. We're going to talk about that today here in a moment, but youth that are here in the room, right now I, I see Cully and Jeremy. So if you have a student here today, they're welcome to leave with, uh, with them to their class. Um, I know we had quite a few students here first service, so maybe that's where they all went. So if they're here, they can join them for their class today. Sometimes you need somebody to nudge you toward a relationship with Christ. And the question I have for you today is, who in your life has influenced you? And you're here today as a follower of Jesus, hopefully as a follower of Jesus. If you're here and you're not yet, we're glad you're here. We hope that you would consider the value of, of discovering the hope in Christ Jesus. But maybe you're, you're here today because somebody influenced you, or maybe somebody's were an influence in your life in a way that moved you to put your trust in Jesus. What are you doing today, right now, here, in your life, to influence now somebody else, to leverage that influence that you have for somebody else for Christ? You know, too often we underestimate the influence that we have. But the truth is, we're humans, and as humans, we cannot escape the power of influence. In fact, you could say it this way, that we are created by our God. We are created with the capacity to influence and to be influenced. So every day, every hour, something is happening. You are either being influenced or you are influencing somebody else. It's just a part of our human design that because we are relational beings, influence happens all the time. Even the influence you don't like is happening all the time. Sometimes we see things in our kids and we get mad at them for what we see and what they're actually doing. We influence them to do it. Through our own action. Isn't it true that sometimes uh, behaviors are, are more caught than taught, right? They see it in you, and you're like, I don't like that in you, but it's like, oh, wait, that's probably from me. Because we are always being influenced, or we are always influencing. But some would say, well, Kelly, time out. Isn't influence something that only a few people have? You know, isn't that something that if you have a position or if you have power or maybe you've got a platform, well, then you've got influence. If you've got a certain amount of followers on social media, then finally you've arrived and you're this person of influence. No, I don't believe that to be true. In fact, I have a, a pretty good sense that when it comes to spiritual influence, Jesus is very accustomed to using simple, ordinary people that don't have position, power, or a platform. I mean, think about it. When he called his first disciples, were these people of power, position, or platform? I mean, he had fishermen, certainly not looked upon as people of power or position or platform in their community. The only one that maybe would have been was, was Levi or Matthew, the tax collector. You know, maybe he had a bit of a platform, but nobody liked him because he worked for Rome. Um, maybe he was the only one that had influence 
We don't know. But we see people who are very ordinary. But what is awesome about this is that these simple men and these simple women who followed Jesus, who were greatly influenced by him, became people of incredible influence in the first century. In fact, if you look at the book of Acts, which follows the Gospels, not only in where it's positioned, but in the timeline of it, the book of Acts shows us that these ordinary men and women who were empowered by the Holy Spirit became incredible influencers in the Roman world to the point where the gospel was advanced throughout the Roman Empire. And these were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were mill workers, if you will, if we were to talk about current vernacular. These were just hourly waged people or people trying to start a business, and yet simple people, but they committed themselves to the influence Christ had in their life and then leveraging that influence forward. In fact, you could say this, that a life influenced by Christ should always, I was going to put will always, but I've discovered that's not necessarily true. And so it should always influence the lives of others. So if Christ has influenced you, and I hope that he has, then that influence should transfer to those around you. That a person influenced by Christ should always influence the lives of others. What this requires then is intention, not power, not position, not a platform, but it requires intention that you know, I'm a person of influence. If Christ has influenced me, then I should find ways intentionally to leverage my influence to those who are closest to me. But here's the thing, I think we can all agree that the area that we feel most powerless to influence in a positive manner is our culture. We have watched over the years as Christianity has become less and less and less of an influence in our culture to the point today where our culture would consider Christianity to be obnoxious. They would consider it a threat to our democracy. What has happened, friends? What has happened that not too many years ago, in fact, within my lifetime, and I'm not that old. I look like it, but I'm not that old. But in my lifetime, how is it that the church has moved from being the hub of a community? You remember those days? It was a hub of a community. If you got married, it was at a church. If you went to a funeral, it was probably at a church because at those critical moments in life, the church was a place, even if you didn't attend regularly, the church was a place you saw as a spiritual influence where you wanted spiritual things to happen. So when you were getting married, you wanted it to happen there. When you were burying somebody, you wanted the service to be there because that's where God was. And there was this general sense that it was a place of influence in communities. But now we fast forward just a few decades and we have churches closing left and right. Now, I'm not saying churches are the solution to our problem. I think Christianity, the move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, is the solution to the sin problem in our world. But what has happened? Here's what's happened. We have not leveraged proper Christian influence in our world. We've lost sight of the mission that our influence that Christ has so touched our lives with was meant to be a positive influence in our world. We've lost that. And instead, what happens now is Christians are considered 
bigots. We're considered people who hate. We're considered to be people who are hypocrites. In fact, you may have even heard a friend of yours say, I'll never go to church because church is just filled with. You know the statement because you've heard it from somebody. And here's here's the truth. They're not necessarily wrong because the church has been filled with people who were fine living a dualistic life where church was something that you did, but Christianity was never something you became. And that's a dangerous place, and we lose influence. But here's the great news. It's not hopeless. I believe the gospel of Christ through the body of Christ is still the hope of the world. I believe that. But the problem is we're not leveraging the influence that Christ has given us to make a difference. So today... In our I'm In series, we're going to talk about how I'm influential. I'm influential. You are influential. You will actually and already are influencing people around you for positive or negative. You are influential. It doesn't require platform, position, or power. You, right now, you are influential. How are you leveraging that? See, the problem is we don't recognize it. We don't pay attention to it to make a difference. But the truth is I'm influential. You're going, hey, I don't know if I am, Kelly. Well, let's just take a minute to look at what influence means. Influence as an American word has a very interesting beginning. In fact, the word was first referred, used to refer to the kind of this celestial fluid that was believed to emanate or flow from the stars. And that that fluid, this is what they believed, that 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 celestial fluid would then somehow impact the, the inhabitants of planet Earth. And that epidemics that we had and, and, and bad things that happened were because of this influence that came from the stars. Now, I think it's interesting, by the way, just going to take a time out here. I think it's interesting that Paul, in Philippians 2, he says that we should be living in such a way among our crooked and deprived world that we should be shining like stars in the universe. I think that's just interesting now that I, I've heard that kind of origin of influence because the Latin basically is, is this sense of to flow out or to flow into earth. I think that's interesting, but that's the origin. It had this sense. In fact, that's why we also use the word influenza to talk about the flu. It, it emanates from a person who is a carrier of that, of that flu bug, and it is transferred into somebody else. And so that same word that we use for influence has its root in the Latin word that also we get the word influenza. So what does it mean? I'm just going to break it down to what the verb actually means is this, to affect or change someone in an indirect but usually important way. That's what influence means, okay? To affect someone in an indirect way but also in a way that is important. When we talk about spirituality, when we talk about people who believe in Jesus, I think that's a pretty important way. I think that we need to understand our spiritual influence, it's pretty important. And oftentimes, in fact, sometimes it's best when it's been done in a very indirect way. So title, position, authority, that may hold power over people, but influence travels through relationships. It has the power to actually flow into people. That's why I always have believed that influence is always more powerful than authority. Because it flows into people. Some of you, were, you bucked against authority as, as teenagers and as young adults, right? But influence had an inroad in your life. 
especially the people that you allowed that to happen. So the essence of influence is basically this, as we talk about it from our Christian perspective. It's the, to affect or change another person in an indirect but important way through the strength of your own character and your own personhood. I mean, if you want to figure out how influence works, then just follow the trail of influenza for a minute. None of us like getting the flu, right? And if you could see the flu coming, wouldn't you dodge it? I mean, like if it, if it was visible, wouldn't you like run away from it, Right? But the problem with influenza is that you can't see it, right? It's airborne, but you can't see it. But the truth is, even though you can't see it, you begin to feel the effects of it, right? You've all probably been there. If you've ever had the flu, bless God for you. We should just take a little bit of something out of your body and create the perfect, you know, antibody, right? But we've all felt it. You're in close proximity to somebody by contact or whatever, you get it, and it influences. What is the evidence of influence? It's change, right? So what happens when you have the flu? Some changes begin to happen, right? Pretty soon, it feels like your stomach's doing hula hoops, you know, around inside your gut, or you get the the shakes, or you have a fever, and you start feeling something changes. That way, that's why you know, I think I came down with something. Influence is evidenced by change. It's either a change in belief or a change in behavior, or in that case, a change in our bodies. Here's the deal. We're all carriers today. And you're carriers, hopefully not of the flu. If you are, you shouldn't be here. But I think we are carriers of character. All of us are. We are influencing others through our personhood, through our character, for good or bad. That's why the Bible says that good or bad character or bad company corrupts what? Good character or good morals. We get this idea. That's the power of influence. You are influencing right now out of your character for good or for evil. And we fail to understand this capacity that we have to influence others in a spiritual manner. We especially underestimate our ability to be people of spiritual influence. Because the Holy Spirit, friends, listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And that influence can't stay inside of you. It has to have an outflow into the lives of others around you. And the reality is you are influencing or being influenced toward Christ or away from Christ right now. In fact, Jesus speaks about this power of influence in one of his most known sermons called the Sermon on the Mount. And we find it in Matthew chapter 5. And before we go to the text in Matthew 5.13, it's so important that when we lift a text out of Scripture that we understand where we're lifting it from, right? What's happening around this passage, okay? So in Matthew 5, Jesus is beginning his Sermon on the Mount. And he sees crowds gathered, so he goes up onto a mountainside. He calls his disciples to him, and he begins to teach. And the beginning of a sermon goes like this. Blessed are those, okay, you remember... What are we talking about? This is called the Beatitudes. He begins the sermon talking about the character that we should have as followers of Christ. This is what kingdom character looks like. And he begins to unpack that in what's called the Beatitudes. And the reason it's called the Beatitudes is because that should be your attitude, right? And so he starts with character. He says, this is what it looks like if you're going to be a part of the kingdom of God This is what it looks like. 
And then in that context, he moves from character now to something to do with that character. Because having good character alone, just to be a better person or to please God, that's great, but that's not the, that's not the end game. So he says, this is what Christian character looks like. Now here's what you do with it. So, verse 13. And before we jump into it, Christian influence, by the way, originates from Christ's character in us. Okay, It's got to start with him. We have to have Christ-like character in our lives to truly have authentic Christian influence. That's the kind of the first point we want to make. But in Matthew 5, if you're using your smart devices, you might use the Bible app because your notes, our notes are available to you through the Bible app. Just go to, just go to your menu, events, find Neighborhood Church, tap it, and our notes with the passages will be there for you. Or go online to our website that's there as well. Matthew 5, 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, How can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus says, look, here's what character looks like in the kingdom. And we know that Christian influence starts with Christ's character in us. But secondly, Christian influence is not an option. It's a responsibility. It's happening, right? Influence is happening all the time. So it's not an option, but rather now we have to see it as a responsibility. And he uses two metaphors that I think are beautiful to help us understand the power of this influence that we have to leverage for his glory. He talks about salt. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, most of you like salt. In fact, some of you, honestly, you like it too much. And the doctor's telling you, you know, you got to cut your salt intake, right? But we like salt primarily today for its seasoning value, right? That's why we, we like salt. Um, and that has a nice little application to it where we're talking about, well, you're, you know, as Christians, we should be enhancing, you know, in our world. We should be making Jesus look good and the Christian faith look right. Yeah, I get it. But here's what the first century church heard. When those few disciples and those that were around Jesus heard him say, you're the salt of the earth, their first thought wasn't flavoring. Their first thought was what salt did primarily in the first century. This was before refrigeration, and so if you wanted to preserve fish or meat, that was done by packing it in salt or drying it with salt. So they would have salted fish or salted meat. I still like salted meat, mostly in the form of jerky. So if any of you out there are, you know, private jerky makers in your home, you you can always bring some by the church. We'll make sure it's adequately sampled and and well-attested to apply especially in this hunting season right now that we're in. It was to preserve. See, salt had an ability to slow decay. And when Jesus was saying, look, you're the salt of the earth, what he was basically saying is, there is an issue in our world today toward death and decay. That's what sin does. And the reason you are here is to insert a preservative into the world that helps the decay stop and the rot to stop and for people to find a life-preserving Savior named Jesus. And you're the ones 
that through your testimony and through your willingness to share the gospel, you are the salt among the rot in our world today. So he uses salt. Secondly, he says you're the light of the world, the light. And we all get what light does, right? We, we appreciate light. In fact, right now you're in seeing me because of light. We appreciate its value. In the first century, there wasn't, obviously wasn't electricity, right? So they would light lamps, and these were simple clay pots that would have oil in it, and they would have a, a little wick and they would light them, and it would create light for their home. Now, typically, homes in, in this first century weren't as well lit as our homes are today. But they would light a lamp, and if you had a whole city that had a bunch of little houses that had all their lamps lit, it would shine on the side of a mountain. The purpose of light is to do what? It is to disperse darkness. Now, none of us really like darkness. If you do, you need to go seize help, right? Not too many of us just love darkness, and so we've invented this wonderful thing called light, and we walk over, we turn a lamp on, and we flip a switch, and the lights come on, and we like that because it disperses darkness. Second quality of light is that it reveals things. The reason I like light is because I can, I can see stuff that I won't walk into. So for example, in the mornings, I get up before my wife does. I'm an early riser, and so I get up, and just to make sure I don't stub my toe again on the bedpost, I get my cell phone and turn on the screen to light my way. It allows me to see anything that might be in my pathway that would be an obstacle that would trip me up or I would hurt myself on, right? We love it because it illuminates things. And you know what? That's exactly what light does as well. It reveals truth. It reveals truth among obstacles so you can navigate through the challenges of life. And he's saying, look, the world is continuing to bump into stuff because of their own darkness and ignorance, but you're a light to those around you revealing the truth. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth. You're revealing me. You're revealing truth into a world of darkness. You are light in the midst of darkness and evil, and you're to be the light of the world. And we love those word pictures, salt, light, they have great qualities. But they have to be applied in the environment, which brings us to the next reason of Christian influence, and that it must be in close proximity to those that it will affect. For example, what good is it if my bag of salt is here, and the meat that I want to have cured or preserved is here, and never the two meet, right? I mean, that's pointless. It has to be applied to do its job. What good is it if my neighbor turns his light on so I can see in my house, right? That doesn't make any sense. You want to turn the light on in your proximity of where you are. If I call my neighbor and say, hey, can you turn the light on? I want to see what I'm doing in my bedroom. They're going to be like, okay, one, that's creepy. You know, why is that much light from my house coming into your bedroom? And two, that's insane. You need to turn your own light on, right? So we get the idea. It works best in close proximity to where the actual need is that it will affect. And here's the reality. Christians, we're not called to be away from the world. I know we hear this phrase where Jesus says that we're not to be of the world. And so we have this sense that, okay, we need to live in community away. We need to pull away from culture. In fact, there were a community of people during the time of Jesus who lived outside of the region of the Dead Sea. And they were diligent to copy Scripture and study Scripture and thank God for them in one aspect. And that's because we had scrolls discovered 
in the caves of Qumran called the Dead Sea Scrolls that have brought some validity to the Bible we have today. But here's the problem. These people lived in isolation. They were a light, but they weren't among those who needed the light. There have been movements of of Christian faith even that have been pull away from community, go live in isolation, pull away from the badness so you can focus on how good you are. And friends, while I believe there's time that solitude is good, the gospel and the salt and light of that gospel is always meant to be right in the environment where it can most have its effect. If the only place I'm letting my light shine and my salt shake is here at church, then that's pointless. Hopefully, other people here are saved. Are you in close proximity with those who need this the most? Yeah, you bump shoulders to people all the time. You may not know it. Is your Christian influence, is your salt and light being applied in those contexts? That's where it needs to be, in close proximity. But the problem is, we have decided to kind of make Christianity more palatable. So rather than bringing light and salt into the dark places and to the rotting and decaying places, we've decided to kind of accommodate the rot and decay and say it's okay, that it's okay to do that. And we've continued to see church after church, denomination after denomination say, well, you know, I know the Bible does kind of say that, but, you know, maybe the Bible's not 100% the word of God. Maybe it's not you know, authoritative, maybe it's not the inspired word of God, maybe God was, doesn't mean that. And so we'll accommodate the gospel truth to y- your lifestyle. And when we feel like to be in the world, that we have to start a compromising with the world, there's problems, friends. And Jesus says, if that salt loses its saltiness, that isn't any good. What's he talking about? How can salt lose saltiness? I mean, a chemist would say, once you have a proper company, it can't lose it. True, but here's what happened. The region that they would get salt from around where Jesus ministered would be from the Dead Sea. Now, if anybody's ever been to the Dead Sea, it's called the Dead Sea because it's dead, all right? It, it has got no, it's got no life. And so because it's a high salt content, the cool thing about it is you can float in the Dead Sea. Because it's such a high concentration of salt. And so they actually get salt from the banks around and from the Dead Sea. But some of that salt has had other chemicals or other materials that have come into that component. And because of that, has actually compromised the salt. And that salt is good for nothing. It can't be used to preserve. So what do they do? In biblical times, they took that bad salt, that corrupt salt, and they would put it down on a pathway. And they would pack it down into the path to firm up the soil. They would put it on top of their thatched or mud roofs and pack it in. Why? To create almost like shingles, a tough surface around their homes that they would walk on. And so that's why it says that it's not good for anything except to be tossed out and trampled upon by men. When our testimony gets corrupted by trying to become like the world, then our salt has lost its saltiness. See, the Bible says we're to be in the world but not of the world. That we're to have influence in the world, but not allow the world to influence us. The gospel message will never change. The truth of God's word will never change. It has to be in close proximity to it, but not identical to our community. Which brings me to the next point, which may almost sound like the opposite of what I just said, but it's this. 
that Christian influence is best achieved when its potency is properly adjusted. So because that almost sounds like I'm unsaying what I just said, let me bring some clarity to what I'm talking about. I like salt, but you ever had a dish that had too much salt? It's not pleasant, is it? You kind of, you know, wash it down with a gallon of water, but it's not pleasant to eat. You ever had a flashlight shown right in your eyes? Or you ever been sleeping in a nice dark cocoon of your bedroom and somebody throws the light on? Those, those are not pleasant moments. Too much salt, too much light, that can, that can be actually hurtful rather than helpful, right? So why is this important? I'm not saying we compromise the message ever. The truth of God's word is the truth of God's word, and I will stand for his truth. But we know that those have to be applied in the situations in which we're in in an appropriate way. Some of you maybe were resistant to even coming to church or becoming a believer of Jesus because somebody along the way used hurtful and harmful ways in your life. The light was too bright. The salt was too salty. And rather than drawing you to the faith, it repelled you. You might have friends that to this day don't go to church because somebody was too salty and the light was too bright and it wasn't helpful. See, friends, I have to understand that by the Holy Spirit's guidance, I can be in a situation in close proximity to people and I can be the appropriate amount of salt and light in that moment. The truth is that salt may increase over time. That light might get brighter over time. But if I glaringly throw a ton of light in their face, and they walk away, I may have lost the opportunity to ever be a light again or a salt again in that person's life. Now, why is this an issue? Because, friends, like you, I see what Christians post on social media. And I kind of go, Jesus, the, the, the light's too bright there. There's too much salt going on. Friends, we have to be wise, not compromise, but be wise in how we apply salt and light into the various contexts that we have because it actually repels people away. You know, it's interesting to me that the world seems to have no problem with Jesus. They actually like him. I mean, they, you know, they look at what he did. It's like, man, he, here's a guy that he walked among people and he cared for them. He was a miracle worker. He, he fed multitudes. He provided for physical needs. He cared for those that were kind of marginalized by religion. Everybody likes Jesus. Isn't it ironic they don't like the church, which is supposed to be the body of Christ? That's supposed to be his image in our world today because our goal as Christians has always been Christ-likeness, that we would be like him because when Christ influences us and it changes our lives, we can't help but influence others. So why has that happened? believe it's because the church has not properly understood and used and leveraged salt and light as Jesus said you were going to be. I love the way it says it in Matthew 5.16 in the New American Standard Version. Listen to what it says. This is the 16th verse of chapter 5. Let your light shine before men in such a way 
I, I love that phrase because it's saying there's a proper way to let your light shine. So let it shine in such a way, well, what? What's the such a way? Well, he goes on. In such a way that they, who's the they? This is the people on the receiving end of your light, right? That they may see what? How bright your light is, how arrogant, how hateful, how, how, how angry you sound? No, what's it say? That they may see your good. They're gonna see it and go, oh, that's good. That they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Friends, the church is not saved by good works. I get it, we're not. But by golly, we should have good works coming out of our life because we're followers of Jesus, influenced by Christ in such a way that we actually do good. And I've seen Christians do more harm than good. We've had enough scandals. We've had enough moral failures by prominent leaders. We've had enough issues that people look at the church and go, you're a mess. You obviously are are problematic people. And the community would be better without you. No, they wouldn't, friends. Because light and salt are always critical in close proximity to where the need is. But the problem is the church needs to awaken to the qualities that Jesus had in mind when he said, I want you to be salt and light in this world. And it looks good. So when the watching world sees what we do, they're going, that's good. I may not believe what you believe. I may not believe that Jesus was who he said he was, but I like what you are doing in our world today. You are good Friends, what would happen if that became the brand of followers of Jesus in our community? I may not agree with you, but I cannot argue with what you are doing because it's good. They might see our good. Say, friends, here it is. You have no idea. You have no idea how an encouraging word or an act done in love might influence someone for Christ. You have no idea. That word you say to your coworker or that, that encouragement you give to your neighbor, those acts of love that you have no idea what that has, what influence that has. You might not feel like it did much. But friends, I've heard testimonies of people who said, I didn't really believe in Jesus, but the way that person treated me when life was hard and their kindness and their love, I couldn't argue with that. And it warmed them up to the truth of the gospel. Never underestimate how that might change someone's life. Years later, Jesus had already died and rose again and commissioned his disciples. One of the disciples named Peter. Peter writes a letter. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, and this is to the Christians at large, kind of an open letter. He says this, live such good lives among the pagans. Now, I wouldn't recommend calling anybody who's a not a follower of Jesus, a pagan, but he's addressing Christians right now. He says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, boy, are we being accused today as followers of Christ of doing wrong? You bet. We're we're people who supposedly hate and who, who carry out hatred against other people because we have a different viewpoint than they do. The reason we have that is because some Christians have been very hate filled in their rebuttals. Friends, we're accused of doing wrong, but live such good lives. Why? That they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. It's like Peter lifts the words of Jesus. He was there that day at the feet of Christ when he says, you know what? 
Peter, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. So let your light so shine in such a way that people will see that, that it's good, and give glory to God. That's, friends, Christian influence. They see good, and they glorify God. It moves on in verse 15, and I love this. For it's God's will. You know what God's will is concerning your influence? Here it is. It's God's will by doing good that you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I hear a lot of ignorant talk of foolish people concerning the Christian faith. And it, it, it can make me angry if I'm not careful. It can anger me, and it, it makes me want to say something back. You ever been guilty of that? You say something angrier back? Well, that, that probably really convinced them. No. It's God's will by doing good. Prove them wrong by your goodness, not your response with hatred. Friends, that is Christian influence. And I, I bring us back to our big idea for today, the main point. A life influenced by Christ should always influence the lives of others. And I might add, positively influence. Because right now, you are influencing or you're being influenced. You can't get away from that. We're relational people. So step into and leverage your Christian influence among your coworkers, your family, your spouse. You're influencing them right now. They're watching you. And I pray to God for myself and for you that our, what they see, our influence that emanates from us is good and is positive because we're stewards of influence. I have a feeling I pray that one of these days we stand before Jesus, we might see the reach of our influence, not for our own glory, but friends, you know what? That one person you've reached with the gospel of Christ Jesus, that one person you've influenced, think of how many they have influenced, and think of how many they've influenced. Friends, I think it could be incredible if we leveraged our influence. You might not be able to change Albany's viewpoint of Christianity but you can change one person's view by your influence and how you live and how you love and how you shine your light and you shake your salt in such a way that they glorify God in the way you act. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've made us relational people, that you've put us in close proximity with others. Maybe those others are our family members that live in our same home, that don't believe as we believe. And maybe they've not seen an adequate Christian influence or testimony in our life because we've been hypocritical. So God, I pray right there, you just stop us in our tracks. If that's us, we repent right now and say, Lord, forgive me for influencing in ways that were not good. We're not perfect, I, I get that. But Lord, we can't intentionally harm because of our poor influence. So may we love you with all of our hearts. It's got to start with character. We cannot influence good when there's not good here to start with. So we're people of God, supposedly birthed of the Holy Spirit, that have the fruit of the Spirit within us that's love, joy, and peace, and all those things that are good. we got to start there. To transform our life. Let us be people of your character. Then out of that character flows and, and emanates the influence of good. 
So God, I pray we would all begin to see, know, to recognize and leverage that influence for good. At home, in our workplace, our neighborhoods. That God, we wouldn't be ashamed of the hope of the gospel. It is truly the solution to the, tr- the problems of our world. May we live in such a way that they see the good and glorify you because of it. That's influence. Help us to be people of influence as we go from this place today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.